I'm excited to preach this passage to you this morning, Acts chapter 9, in our ongoing study of the book of Acts, what we're calling Be the Church. This is really an incredible story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. I want to begin by asking you, have you ever known someone who's changed their appearance so dramatically? Maybe they lost a ton of weight, or they changed the color of their hair, or they got that face tattoo they were talking about for a long time. And you looked at them and you thought, that transformation was so dramatic, they're a totally different person. You almost didn't recognize them. The changes that can take place in a person's appearance can actually be pretty dramatic. I remember seeing a a couple of photos of a little boy that one of our missionaries sent us. It was a little boy who had been treated at the uh, medical clinic that she served at. And the first picture before he was treated was very, very sad to look at. He, he was clearly sick and malnourished. And he was very, very skinny. It was, it was really painful. The second picture, after he'd been treated, he was healthy. He was happy. He was smiling. He was even a little chubby. And you almost, you couldn't recognize the two. He almost didn't look like the same little boy. You know, celebrities are probably the easiest targets for before and after pictures, right? Because when we see them, usually they're young and they're so beautiful. But as time goes on, as they age with us, time, gravity, and cupcakes do their worst. (laughs) And usually the results of that are somewhat unfortunate. But in either case, a person's appearance can change so dramatically that it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to say they're a totally different person. But of course, we know that they're not. They just look different. But when someone goes from opposing Jesus or ignoring Jesus to loving him, they are a new person. They don't just look like a new person. They really are a new person. And that's why the Bible uses terms like born again and a new creation in Christ. It's as if God just recreated them all over again. They're no longer the same person. They have a new eternal destiny. They have a new perspective on all of life. Now they desire to glorify God in every area of their lives. The sins that they used to commit that they were proud of, that they bragged about, now they're actually ashamed of. Yes, Christians still sin. We know that all too well. But the Bible says that the old is gone and the new has come. Everything is different. And perhaps nobody else's story in the Bible of coming to faith in Christ demonstrates that more clearly than Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And our passage this morning goes into one of the most consequential conversions to Christ in all of human history. Not only did Paul go on to become one of the early church's most important leaders, he planted multiple churches trained key leaders, discipled number of believers we don't even know the the number of. Not only that, God used him to write about half of the books of the New Testament. And even now, 2,000 years later, his influence is felt all over the world. So how did this violent opponent of Christianity come to be one of, if not its greatest, missionaries? And that really is the story of our passage this morning. Our text is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. You can find it on page 917 in the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And I would encourage you to, uh, to go through it as we uh, look through this passage. 
And this, this actually, Acts chapter 9, is one of three times Paul's conversion story is told in the book of Acts. He tells it later on in chapter 22 and also in chapter 26. And those add a little bit more detail to it. So I'll be drawing from those chapters as well. He also refers to his conversion in Galatians chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 and elsewhere. And what's clear is that the Apostle Paul never forgot this encounter with Jesus and what it meant. But I, I do need to say that there are far more things that we could learn from the Apostle Paul's conversion than we could cover in, in a 30-minute sermon. Even a 30-minute-ish sermon, which I think buys me another 15 minutes or so, there's no way that we can cover it all. So my hope is that this just sort of whets your appetite to study it a little bit further. And even though this is Paul's story of going from a persecutor of Jesus to a proclaimer of Jesus, it's really the story of how our sovereign God saved him and why. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on three truths about God from our passage. And they're these three. Number one, God can save anyone. Number two, God can use anyone. Number three, God desires to save everyone. And these truths are demonstrated throughout the book of Acts. And they serve as powerful reassurances, not not really just reminders. I think they're reassurances to all of us as followers of Christ as we seek to live out his mission, the 167 hours every week that we are not gathered here in this sanctuary. And the key thought from our passage this morning is this. It's this. <laughs> nope, it's this. The gospel is the power of God to save anyone. Did you like that pause, the dramatic effect that was building up? That was intentional. Either that or I messed up the slides. The gospel is the power of God to save anyone. Do you believe that? It is true. Sometimes we don't think it's true, but it is absolutely true. Let's read from our passage, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The first point of our passage is this. God can save anyone. Now in your notes it actually says an antagonist converted. And that's there simply to confuse you. Actually, these three points, God can save anyone, God can use anyone, and God desires everyone to be saved, really follow the points in your outline. 
So when you've got an antagonist converted, you can put a colon, an M dash, an N dash, a hyphen, whatever you feel led to do. And then you put after that, God can save anyone. God can use anyone. And God desires to save everyone. Romans 1.16 is an important passage that Saul, later the Apostle Paul, would write later in his ministry. But it was also on display in his life. And it says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first because they are the chosen people of God, to the Greek or Gentile as well, though. The Apostle Paul's conversion demonstrates the power of God in the gospel because Paul was such an unlikely convert to ever have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, I suspect that all of us could probably name at least a few people that we think would be almost impossible to see come to faith in Christ. Maybe the person that you're thinking of is antagonistic to the gospel like, like Paul was. Or maybe they're indifferent to Jesus, as so many are. Or perhaps they think they know Jesus already, although their lives say the exact opposite. But whatever the case, after sharing the gospel with them on multiple occasions, we've possibly come to the conclusion that, you know, they're never going to be saved. There seems to be zero receptivity to the gospel. I remember sharing the gospel with a friend of mine. I've shared it with him multiple times. One time in particular, it looked as though he were really close to, to understanding what I was saying and possibly even making a profession of faith. He was weighing what I said, and finally he said, no, it can't be. What you're saying can't be true, because if you're right then everybody I know is going to hell. And regardless of whether that was true or not, it was something he couldn't accept. It was a deal breaker for him. And it's heartbreaking, but it's not hopeless. And that really is one of the great encouragements of Paul's conversion to Christ. God can save anyone. And just like he did with Paul, he can do it just like that. So let me ask the question, why was Paul such an unlikely convert? Why would we put him up and say, well, if he can be saved, pretty much anybody can be saved? Well, there are a few reasons I think this passage shows us. The first one is this. He hated Christians. He hated Christians. Verse 1 tells us that he was breathing threats and murder. Verse 2, Paul pursued them to Damascus about 150 miles away. I mean, that's like getting on a on a donkey and going to Indianapolis in order to pursue people that you, that you hate and you want to put them in prison. In fact, he imprisoned many of the way. That's what Christians were called then, members of the way, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he put them in prison whether they were men or women. Leaving children behind didn't matter to Paul. And in Acts 26, verse 10, he says that he voted against them so that they would be killed just for being Christians. He describes it this way. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul wasn't indifferent to Christians and Christianity. He hated them. And he wanted them completely gone. But secondly, he hated Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus asked, Why are you persecuting me? Followers of Jesus are hated because we are united to him. And he really is the one. He is the object of people's hate. 
When you and I are persecuted for our faith, really it's about Jesus. Jesus actually said this in John chapter 15. He warned us that this would happen. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as, it, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Acts 26.9, Paul said he was convinced that he needed to do everything, he said, everything that he could to oppose Jesus, including trying to get Christians to blaspheme Jesus' name. To Paul, Jesus was an imposter. He was a false messiah. He was a deceiver who was harming God's chosen people. And in his zeal, he opposed Jesus with all of his strength. A third reason is that he was successful in Judaism. In Galatians 1.14, Paul says this, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And really, I think he gives something away there. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers more than for the word of God. He, of course, thought they were the same thing, but they weren't. That's true for many people that we may know today. They're zealous for the religion of their culture, the religion of their family, but they're not open to the truth. Paul also was a Pharisee. That made him an unlikely convert. You know, if your relationships, if your reputation, if your career is contingent upon your religious beliefs, as it really is openly in, in so many parts of the world, you may find yourself less interested in the truth and more interested in protecting yourself. A fourth reason is this. Paul wasn't searching for the truth. He wasn't looking for it. He was very well trained theologically. He was very zealous. And in Acts 23.1, he said he lived with a good conscience. He wasn't troubled. He didn't have doubts. He believed he had the truth. So his mind was closed. He didn't need to search for the truth. He was confident that he already had it. And sadly, that describes many people today. Paul says this about himself in 1 Timothy 1.13. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. In short, Paul was one of the most unlikely converts ever to put his trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. And Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us this story of how this great Christian leader finally did come to faith in Christ. So that you and I can understand the power of the gospel that we have been entrusted with. It is far more powerful than we realize. Jesus has not given us a fool's errand and said, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, if you can find anybody, and good, good luck, because I'm not sure that's going to happen or not. This gospel is powerful. This gospel changes lives. People will believe, even the most unlikely, and they do believe because the gospel is God's power to save, including saving the most unlikely, the most difficult people of all, like the Apostle Paul. So how did Paul get saved? This is such a great story. You know, one of the things that Paul's conversion demonstrates is the sovereignty of God. As I said, Paul wasn't searching for the truth. In fact, he was, he was actively opposing it. He didn't respond to a friend's invitation to church or a Bible study. 
There's no evidence that he searched the scriptures to see if what Jesus and his disciples said were true. Surprisingly, in his conversion account here, no one even shares the gospel with him. But Jesus obviously made clear to Paul who he is. So on his way to persecute the followers of Jesus, Jesus stopped him cold and saved Paul. He didn't look like someone that was kind of ripe for the picking, right? There are certain people we know who think, oh, they're so close to the gospel. Paul didn't look that way at all. It was a purely miraculous act of God's grace and mercy in his life. And Paul found that grace irresistible. He says that a light shone, and in chapter 26 it says, a light brighter than the sun. It shone all around him and blinded him. He was so overwhelmed that he fell to the ground, no doubt scared out of his mind. And then he heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In fact, the whole emphasis of this chapter focuses on that question. And you know, it's a question that Jesus may be asking some of you this morning. Why are you persecuting me? Imagine how Paul must have felt. Confusion, pain from the bright light, and no doubt fear. And all he could say was, who are you, Lord? You know, I think he knew. And I think he dreaded what he heard next. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, let that soak in for a while. You know, my mind goes to, to think that there are, that what Paul experienced has to be similar to what people who have rejected Christ their whole lives experience the moment that they die and stand before the Lord and they see Jesus. And they think to themselves, I've run away from him my whole life. And the fear, the pain, maybe the confusion at that moment. And they realize that what Paul would later write in Romans 1 is true. They are without excuse. It is a scary, sobering thought. We don't have to wonder how overwhelmed Paul was by his encounter with Jesus. The text tells us. Remaining blind, they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he ate and drank nothing. And in verse 11, we're told that during this time, Paul was praying. And he had to say, well, I wonder how often Paul was praying during this time. I think it's pretty safe to say he was probably praying every waking moment. In fact, I wonder how much he slept at all during those three days. I can imagine Paul praying over and over again for Jesus' forgiveness. Forgive me, forgive me. The Jesus that he hated, the Jesus that he blasphemed, the Jesus whose followers he imprisoned and killed, this Jesus, Paul discovered, is the Son of God. And in between asking Jesus for forgiveness, he may have been asking himself repeatedly, how could I have been so wrong? How did I not see it? That is the power of the gospel. Someone who wasn't looking someone who couldn't have been any more hard, someone who was convinced that he was right, turns around and realizes, I was completely wrong. Jesus is not who I thought he was. He is the Son of God. It's the power of the gospel to take an antagonist and turn him into an advocate, a blasphemer, and turn him into a believer. And you know, it's not just Paul's story. It's some of your stories this morning as well. 
You were blind, but now you see. And I think there are two unfortunate responses that Christians might have to a dramatic testimony like Paul's. For some, we might kind of despise our own testimony. Maybe you got saved as a child and you think, you know, my, my testimony's boring. There's, there's really just not all that much to it. Or perhaps you watch a story like Nathaniel's, the video that we watched, and you hear him tell the, the life that he led on the streets. And you might even say smugly to yourself, well, thank God I wasn't that bad. But the reality is you were. You and I were that bad. The truth is that from a divine perspective, you and I, any one of us who have already followed Christ, you and I were as unlikely a convert to Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul. Why? Because everyone in our natural state is spiritually dead. We are alienated from God because of our sin. Nobody walks into a morgue and asks, which corpse is most likely to come back to life, right? None of them are coming back to life. So while we rightly see hope for the, the stubborn, unbelieving people in our lives when we look at the conversion of someone like the Apostle Paul, you and I need to understand that our own coming to faith in Christ is no less a miracle of God's grace. We are proof that God can save anyone. Yes. And if you're not convinced, let me just say this. Given the wrong circumstances... You and I are capable of all kinds of evil. Push the right buttons, and I would even say that you and I are likely to commit evil apart from Christ. On our own, we have no interest in God. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, all who lust are guilty of adultery. All who hate are guilty of murder. We were immoral, disobedient idolaters who resisted God's will every chance we got. And it was only his mercy, only his mercy that prevented those qualities from being on full display in our lives. The distance between the best sinner and the worst sinner is microscopic compared to the distance between the best sinner and a holy God. It's not even worth comparing. You know, as a, as a result, just as a point of application, followers of Jesus Christ should be the most humble, loving, and gracious people on the planet because we know what we were we know what we could have been apart from the grace of God. And you know, Paul gives us that example of humility. He says something rather remarkable about his conversion in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that remarkable? Paul wants us to take comfort in his conversion. That if he was the recipient of God's mercy, then Jesus can save anyone. G Paul was, as the expression goes, a trophy of God's grace. And trophies are to be put on display for the honor of of the one who won them. And for all of us who name the name of Jesus, our lives should honor him in that way. Because remember, the gospel is the power of God to save anyone, even those most unlikely. Our second point this morning is that God can use anyone. God can use anyone as well. 
Let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Skip a bit. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and, and lay his hands on him. So that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. We don't have enough time this morning to devote to Ananias' role in this chapter, but clearly he displayed the most important ability of anyone that's going to serve God, and that is availability. Even though he was reluctant at first, his response to the Lord's voice is simply, here I am, Lord, and it needs to be our response as well. After sharing his concerns with the Lord about helping this violent opposer of God's people, Ananias obeyed. And he went to Paul and he prayed for him. And he was healed. And he was likely the one to baptize him. Think about that. God gave Ananias an incredible blessing. Didn't he? He gave him an opportunity to have a significant role in the life of the great apostle Paul. And imagine if out of fear or he was busy, he declined and he disobeyed. But he didn't. And I bet Ananias was telling his grandkids that story a thousand times. Anytime the Apostle Paul's name came up, you know I baptized him, right? You know he was blind, <laughs> prayed for him, boom, healed. That's what I did. The major character of this chapter, of course, is, is Paul. God was not content simply to save Paul. He had a very specific and a very difficult ministry that he gave him to. In verses 15 and 16, it says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God called Paul a chosen instrument. It sounds like a great honor, and in fact it was, but it was not an honor that was an easy one. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts talks about how difficult it was for, for Paul. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he kind of describes the different sufferings he went through for Jesus' name. He talked about multiple beatings, multiple shipwrecks, multiple imprisonments, going hungry and thirsty and not having enough clothes to keep him warm on multiple occasions. 
All of which Paul would later say are light and momentary troubles compared to what God had in store for him. So why was Paul an unlikely servant of God? I think Paul would have been disqualified from any kind of service in the eyes of most Christians, wouldn't you think? I mean, you might say, okay, he can clean up after the potlucks or something like that, but that's really about it. And God put him in the front of the line and made him an apostle. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, really, Lord, there was nobody on the bench you could have pulled in and, and, and put in that role? Paul goes from blasphemer to apostle? But think about it. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a murderer. And obviously, he wasn't trusted by anybody in the church. I mean, how can you be effective? No one trusts you at all. How do you rebuild trust that quickly? And I would think he would even be hated by some people in the church because he was responsible for the death of their loved ones. And then why appoint him to reach the Gentiles? This guy was was a Jew's Jew, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. It would have made more sense to just let him loose on the the Jewish people. And of course he did. He was used by God to, to reach a lot of Jewish people with the gospel. I mean, God's preparation of Paul seems so unlikely. It seems so unexpected. I mean, in our minds, perhaps a Gentile would have been better to to reach the Gentiles. But God knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Paul for that ministry. And Paul would let nothing stop him from fulfilling the ministry God gave him. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. So here's the application for us. God can use anyone. I mean, look, he's using me. The bar is lower than you think. Okay? The water's warm. Jump in. He can use anyone. Will he use you if you were a follower of Christ? Absolutely. Why wouldn't he? God uses all kinds of people in the Bible that that you wouldn't expect him to use. He uses people who don't speak well. He uses sinners because that's all he's got. He uses people with bad reputations, people who aren't educated, people who came from the wrong town like Nazareth, people who had the wrong occupation like tax collector or fisherman. You may have your own set of excuses for why God won't use you, but God can show you that he can overcome them all. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's really not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. The devil just wants you to believe that God can't use you, God won't use you, or being used of God is too difficult. It's too painful. It's too unpleasant. Jesus' words to Paul were, in effect, rise up and go. Rise up and go into the city. His words to Ananias were similar. Rise up and go. Seems as if Jesus finds a lot of people sitting on the ground when he needs them to get up and go. So here's my question for you. What is Jesus asking you to get up and go do? What is he asking you to get up and go do to fulfill the mission that he has given to the church? Something that nobody else can do, perhaps. You know, God has given every Christian two things. A mission and every single thing you need to fulfill your role in that mission. If you are a child of God, never believe the enemy's lies that you cannot be used or that you will not be used, that you have little or no value for the kingdom of God. Because the gospel is the power of God to save everyone, to save anyone, I should say, 
through anyone. The final truth about God from this passage is that God desires to save everyone. This is the alienated called. We serve a God who seeks to save those who are lost. He does that by saving undeserving people and giving them a mission to reach out to other undeserving people. And we see that that work of God in Paul's life shortly after he's, he's saved. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul didn't waste much time getting started on his assignment from the Lord. He immediately, he immediately and boldly proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God and the text says that he proved that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. God strengthened Paul more and more, and he confounded the Jews in Damascus. And you know the amazing thing is? He was just getting started. He was just getting started. Luke has already pointed out through various means that the gospel is for everyone. Jews and Gentiles alike, and that's everyone. Those who were formerly alienated by God are now being called by God to Christ in other words, God desires to save everyone. And it's a, it's a truth that we see most clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, should, that, but that all should reach repentance. That's a great truth about our Heavenly Father. And so he calls all of his people, gives us a mission, completely equips us to do that. You know, in, in the third account of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 26, we have more detail about what Jesus said to Paul, the mission that he gave him to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that amazing? That's what God is calling, called Saul to do called Paul to do, and you and I have a role in that as well. That is the heart of God. And tragically, some people won't believe. They'll still reject Jesus. But God's plan is beautifully seen in the Apostle Paul. God saved and then commissioned an unlikely man to reach the lost. The Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. But Paul always saw his unique calling from God as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the alienated to most of us, to most of our friends, our family members, the people in this city. So what do we do? We get in the game. That's what we do. We get in the game. God desires that everyone be saved. And though they won't, you, you have a mission from God. You have a calling from God. You play an important role in God's plan to save his people. So entrust yourself fully to him. Ask him, what are you calling me to do? Who are you calling me to reach? 
What conversations are you calling me to have? Who am I to be praying for? Entrust yourself fully to him. Never give up on the lost. Submit yourself wholeheartedly to him and pray that God's love for the lost will flow through you clearly and boldly like it did through the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are not here on this planet primarily to enjoy the blessings that you have given to us. This world is full of people going to hell forever. And in your mercy, you have rescued undeserving and unlikely people like many of us here. And then you have told us, freely you have received, now freely give. I have opened your eyes and I desire to open the eyes of many, many more people. Father, give us that hunger. Grant us that courage by the power of the Holy Spirit so that every one of us, when we stand before Jesus on that final day, would not only know him personally, but that we will be blessed to see many that have come to faith in him through our own testimony. Do that, we pray, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.